All right, well, it's good to be with you, and hopefully we'll get this ringing taken care of here. I do want to make a comment up front before we get into God's Word. Uh, I am going on day 15, so I think I'm well past the, um, the quarantine time, but I, I still do have a lingering cough, so I don't want that to be a distraction uh, for you this morning, but just wanted to, to let you know ahead of time that it's not me that will infect you, okay? <laughs> All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look there this morning. As you're turning there, the vast majority of Christmas carols focus on one night. We sang several of them already this morning. We sing Silent Night and O Holy Night, and we beckon believers to sing, O come, all ye faithful. We sing, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. We make much of the scene of his birth by singing away in a manger and hark the herald angels sing. We regard his birthplace by singing a little town of Bethlehem. The witnesses as we sing while shepherds watch their flocks by night and the visitors that Jesus eventually had by singing we three kings of Orient are. There are so many carols for us to consider. We've sung a great deal of them this morning. They cause us to consider the babe of that one night. Carols like, Who is he in yonder stall? Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. We even sang this morning, What child is this? Asking the question. And this morning, I would like us to consider the answer to that carol's question, what child is this? Surprisingly, many of these rich theological hymns are still played at some level at stores. Pastor Mike and I were at a restaurant, and I even recall hearing, what child is this? Asking the question. Pastor Tim made some comments about how he takes advantage of Christmas hymns during the Christmas season. It's kind of astounding that in 2021, I can walk into a sub shop and hear, what child is this? A, a, a sandwich sub shop, okay? And hear, what child is this? Playing in public venues. But many, unfortunately, escape the question for themselves, don't they? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. Many can go about this season, and many do go about this season busy with shopping, scheduling, and having to reschedule because everyone's sick. I know that's happened quite a bit here. Going from one party to the next family gathering, to getting extra days off, to spending more time with loved ones, all failing at some level to consider the most important question of all, what child is this? Some will even take time this season to attend an extra church service, and perhaps that's you this morning or online, all because it's part of the season's traditions. And we can appreciate a lot of our season's traditions. But while Christmas festivities don't take root till much later in church history, the Apostle Paul, here in Galatians chapter 4, gives us an answer to the question, what child is this? If most carols begin with the first words of the song, and 
And they do, if you think about them. I can imagine the Apostle Paul's Christmas carol being, When the fullness of time came. That kind of sounds like a Christmas carol. Might have a ring to it someday. When the full, I don't know if it is. Maybe it is an old Christmas carol somewhere. When the fullness of time came. So let's take our Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 4 if you're not there already. And we're going to read two simple verses. Chapter 4, Galatians, verse 4. <clears throat> but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Here, Paul gives us six characteristics to consider about this child. And he starts by saying, when the fullness of time came. You know, as if we were to kind of telescope out a little bit from these verses in the book of Galatians, we would see that Paul is addressing a problem. And for me, it's always helpful to kind of see what Paul is trying to get at, namely through the problem of what he's trying to get at, to really kind of elucidate or, or make sure that we're within the context of what Paul's trying to say. And specifically, we want to know what Paul is saying about this child. And so we want to know what the context demands. And there was a problem that Paul was addressing here in this book. And frankly, I'm going to put it my way. You're not going to find this in commentaries, but sometimes they're dry. All right. I like to think of the problem in Galatians like this. It's a diluted problem. We we're thankful Julia's here with us this morning. She had all kinds of opportunities to be diluted in the pool over the Christmas break, and she did a, a good job, and congratulations to her. Water dilutes, and Julia can swim right through that delusion, that dilutedness, all right? But, but Paul here is saying, listen, there's something you don't want to dilute, and that is the power of the gospel. And that was really the problem here that uh, Paul was addressing, a deluded Jesus. There were certain believers and non-believers that were trying to water down the gospel, which, require, which requires faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were trying to water down the gospel to reduce the gospel, to thin it with works. Specifically here in Galatians with the law. Our culture today celebrates this kind of diluted gospel because if you dilute the gospel, you dilute Jesus. You know, there's all these commercials, just a hint of flavor, right? Just a, just a hint of something in water. And my friends, that's how people want their Jesus. They want just a hint of him. They don't want all of him. And Paul is saying here, in no uncertain terms, you can't do that. And have the real Jesus. You can't just have a hint of him in your life. You need to have him as your savior. You need to accept him fully in faith. That is Paul's point. And if you water down the gospel, you water down Jesus. And if you water down Jesus, it doesn't matter how you treat people at the end of the day. Because you can water down Jesus and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you, uh, uh, what you think about Jesus. You water down Jesus, you can drink any kind of self-pleasing, pseudo-truth that you want to and essentially get away with it. And Paul's contention is, and our proposition is this morning, 
that in an age of deluded Jesus, God gave only one plan, he gave only one sure promise, and he gave a glorious purpose for the Christ child. And so we have these, really these six characteristics here, and we're going to see underneath these six characteristics, right? That God's plan, God's promise, and God's purpose for the incarnation. It's a simple outline for the incarnation. God's plan, his promise, and his purpose. And so let's look at the plan for the incarnation. We see that very clearly beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came. So the question to ask, really, right, is what constitutes the fullness of time? Take your Bibles real quickly and go with me to Luke chapter 2. No doubt maybe some of you read this uh, over the Christmas holiday. And, and some people will look at <clears throat> uh, the fullness of time through a historical lens in the gospel. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all those inhabited in the earth. That seems like a pretty far-reaching governmental reality. And so I learned in high school that this was really part of the, the, the fullness of time. And so we could look at political and we could look at linguistic realities of the fullness in time. And even to this point in world history, we could look at technological advances. But I really do appreciate the balance that one author put it. He says this, speculation about what made this particular time appropriate for the sending of the sun is fruitless. We can only know that God determined it to be the right time because he said so. When the fullness of time came, back in Galatians chapter 4. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that God's ways are always higher than ours. And that God alone is the one who determines the right time. You know, so kind of let that wash through 2020 and 2021 and you living right now. <laughs> God alone determines the right time. He did that for his son, sending him to this earth. He certainly does that for you here in this moment. And Paul reminds the Galatian readers right away in his letter to them that God has a plan. And that even though things may seem like they're spiraling out of control, God is at work, isn't he? Think about, the, think about what our church family is going through. There are a lot of things going through our church family members' bodies right now that seem like things are spiraling out of control, don't they? Sickness, illness, things that we frankly cannot control. But God has a plan. That's what Paul wants us to remember. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. So I want to, us to see this in the context of Galatians here. God's plan included the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So Paul, right away, he kind of, he, he says, hey, listen, this isn't my plan. This is, I'm not an apostle by my making. God sent me. Oh, and by the way, don't forget about the resurrection. Don't forget about the plan for Jesus 
not only to come in the incarnation, but to live life perfectly, to die, to only be raised again. And can you recall the, the concern, the seemingly spiraling out of control realities of the 12 when Jesus was crucified? It certainly didn't seem like things were all bundled up in a nice packaged plan of God, did it, for them? Peter went away. He went back to fishing. He was so discouraged. After denying his Savior three times. And Jesus told them what was going to happen. And they still were discouraged about the plan unfolding. The plan of God unfolding. So Paul reminds his readers at the very beginning of this letter that God had it under control. God used the Apostle Paul. He set the Apostle Paul. God used the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Really what Paul wants us to learn is that if we tend to look at things from the perspective of human senses, senses, you know, like, like when Peter is looking at this little girl and he decides to deny Jesus because of the fear of what's around him, things often seem hopeless and confusing and overwhelming and tragic. That is not at all God's perspective in his divine plan. God always has the end in mind and he always has the end in mind perfectly so, doesn't he? So in the fullness of time, God sent his son. We're in chapter 1 of Galatians Go with me to verse 15. You know, how many Christians were wondering about this man, Saul, the pre-conversion Paul, right? Who was going around ravaging the church. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Think about that. I mean, he literally shook the church to its core as the persecutor. And there are times that Paul rehashes that. But what does Paul do here? Paul puts his finger that, no, actually, you know what? When I was in my mother's womb, God actually had a divine plan for me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Kind of forget all the chaos that I did to the church. That was part of God's plan unto another end. And aren't we glad today for the apostle Paul and his contributions to the church? <laughs> I am. Amen. I so am. The church can bring itself to be thankful for the Saul turned Paul by the grace of God. You know, one of the interesting things that we did during our sabbatical about a year and a half ago or so was I got to take my family into a real live uh, bush maze. You know what I'm talking about? Kind of like the Queen of Hearts kind of stuff where you're where you're actually, I mean, there were hedges about eight, nine feet tall, and there were clues throughout this maze, 
So it's think corn maize in the fall, but evergreen bushes. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I, it, it, took, it probably took about an hour to get through the thing with our, with our children. And that was really, quite frankly, a lot of uh, trial and error of, of, do you, I think we passed that bush before. <laughs> I think we passed, passed that, uh, and thankfully they would put objects around. So you say, yeah, pretty sure we've passed that one before. And at the very end of this bush maze, you kind of go up on a bridge and you get up and you can kind of overlook the entirety of this maze. And when you see it, there's the start, there's the finish. Doesn't seem that complicated. In fact, it kind of makes you wonder how it took an hour to get from point A to point B, and I blame it on my wife. <laughs> and she blames it on me. But you know, that's oftentimes, I think, maybe, my, from my perspective, I think God's perspective. God, it's not that he puts mazes into our life to confuse us, but God does put ups and downs and rights and lefts into our life all the time. And you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. You know that a thousand years is like a day, and a day like a thousand years to our Lord. And you know, it might seem like what in the world is this all about in my life, in my loved one's life? But I think the Apostle Paul wants us to kind of remember, at times we need to stand back and remember that God has a divine plan. He reminds us about the wonderful plan of God sending his son at the fullness of time. And can you remember, can you imagine the faithful prior to Jesus Christ wondering what in the world, when in the world is this going to come? When is the promised one going to come? God has a divine plan. And he sent forth his son. That's the next thing we see here, Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. We see that the time element of God's plan is carefully crafted. But he also reminds us that God is the one who's sending, who sent forth his son. And I think... This is a really helpful thing for us to remember during the holiday season. It is really helpful for us to remember some of the basics of the Christian faith. Amen. That God sent forth his son, especially during all the traditions of the holidays and, and the festivities. You know how easy it is to forget that everything really revolves around the fact that God sent forth his son. It's easy to get caught up in all the gift giving and the gift getting and the decorating and the trees and the lights and the meal planning. All of these things are wonderful and frankly I tend to go way overboard on them. Probably like most of you. But it's easy when we're busy because we're human and we're finite to kind of forget what it really is all about. No one ever wonders why they put up Christmas lights before Christmas, right? If you do it, you do it because you want to do it or because you want to see the smiles on people's faces. But probably, at least I do, and I'm sure probably a lot of people do, wonder why they put Christmas lights up after Christmas when they have to take them all down. 
right? Why did we do this again this year? We could have just left that Tupperware box in the basement. It's easy during all the festivities and the good festivities to forget some of the basics that God sent forth his son. And so I just want to quickly encourage you to add to your family's traditions, putting up lights and trees. If you don't have anything that fully reminds you that God sent forth his son. We have traditions here at church. We have a candlelight service. We <coughs> gather around, we sing, we hear a devotional. Perhaps maybe for some of our households that means listening to less casual Christmas songs. Nothing's wrong with jingle bells and well, I have girls so Batman never smells and Robin never laid an egg, but uh, there's nothing wrong with those fun songs, right? But, but don't not take advantage. So take advantage of all the wonderful hymns that are being sung this time of year. And think about them and talk about them. Maybe consider reading a passage of Scripture prior to your family's opening up presents. That's something that our family does, and probably many of you do. We typically turn to Luke chapter 2. And we read the Christmas story before we open up presents so we can at least for a minute remember why in the world it is that there's gifts underneath this tree. My wife's family had a, uh, has a tradition where they have scripted out Luke chapter 2 and they put on a full Christmas pageant to each other. And as uh, 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 new into the family, I can remember thinking this was pretty serious when they had boxes of Tupperware strategically marked Christmas pageant with all the costumes and all the things inside. I thought, wow, <laughs> we're about to put on something pretty interesting. And it's always kind of a fun time and more of a funny time, but it causes us to remember and go through the Christmas story. Perhaps... Maybe even memorizing a passage of Scripture together, like Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Do something as a family to remind yourselves that God has sent forth His Son. God has sent forth His Son. And so we see in an age where many are looking to water down the truths of the gospel and dilute the reason of Christmas that you and I must remember that God has a plan. And God's plan includes the incarnation. Then we also want to see not only God's plan here, but we want to see God's promises. So we see God's plan, and now we want to look at God's promises of the incarnation. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. Here's the first promise. Born of a woman. Born of a woman. Well, you know, there's not much to that. If you think about it, in some sense, we were all born of women, right? So this isn't much of a remarkable phrase on the face of it. But remember who we're talking about here. We're not talking about merely you or me. We're talking about God sending his son 
to be born of a woman. That is quite a remarkable thing. It's so remarkable that it was promised at the very foundations of our civilization. Take your Bibles. Go to Genesis chapter 3. We see the greatest tragedy of all happening in this chapter. Right? The fall of man by the deception of Satan. And we also have the greatest promise ever given in this chapter. In verse 15 that one day God would give of the woman's offspring, Eve, a son that would defeat Satan and finally restore man's relationship with God. You know this verse, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Eve's seed would crush Satan's head even though Satan would crush or bruise merely his heel. And so all this looks to Matthew chapter 1. So we're going to kind of skip a bunch of promises and go to Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew's recount of the prophet Isaiah in verse 23, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. What? And he shall, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew reminds us that this is a promise that God would not just leave us in our sin, but this is a promise of salvation and of hope. <coughs> Excuse me, this is a promise of tearing down the wall that divided humanity from God by making God human. Emmanuel, God with us. This is a promise that no matter what questions you have unanswered, why in the world did we have to fall in the first place? Why did we have to have sin? Why did there have to be a Satan? This promise demonstrates that God is faithful, that God is sacrificial, that God is sufficient in his love, that sending his son born of a woman to save mankind from their sin. But he wasn't only born of a woman. That was a promise. But here's the other promise. He would be born under the law. Now this is quite a, a pivotal, pivotal statement in Paul's flow of argument in Galatians as a whole. And Paul's point is rather simple. Jesus Christ was born under the same requirements and the same expectations of the law that you and I are born under. In fact, we see historically this to be the case in Luke chapter 2. Go with me there. You already read verse 1. You see in verse 21, Jesus was circumcised according to the law historically on the eighth day. And then in verse 22, you see there, Joseph and Mary observed the days of purification according to the law. So we see here that there are potentially historical references to the reality that Jesus was born underneath the law. But Paul is actually saying much more than that here in the book of Galatians. 
He's saying Jesus was subjugated to the law just like us. He had to keep it just like we did. And Paul says he didn't just keep it, he fulfilled it. He didn't just keep it to the T, but he, he is the reason for it, for the law. That's actually quite a remarkable thing. I know we're going all around, but we're not going too far out of Galatians. So go back to Galatians chapter 3. And really, this is Paul's argument. This is really where Paul starts to unpack what he means when he says, Jesus, God, sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does it mean to be born under the law? Why is it so important for Jesus? Paul demonstrates in chapter 3 Christ's superiority to the law by outlining which came first, the law or the promise of Jesus. We see here in verse 16, look at it. Verse 16, we see Paul says the promise came first. Jesus came before the law. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So right away, Paul says, hey, listen, what came first, the law or the promise of the seed, the Messiah, the Christ? Paul says, the promise came first. That is superior Look at verse 17. The law was given 430 years after the promise of Christ was given. What I am saying is this. So he wants to make it really clear. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant, a promise previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. (coughs) Verse 18, Paul reiterates that the inheritance promised to Abraham's seed was based on a promise, not based on fulfilling the law. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, inheritance is all those things that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So he says it's not based on law, it's based on promise. The promise came first. Verse 19, Paul anticipates the question, why then the law? And says it was given because of sin. And this is a pretty typical understanding that we get from Paul. Why the law? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, Christ, would come to whom the promise had been made. Why did we need the law? Because the law showed us what? We're sin. We're sinners. We need God's promise. Come, God's promise, come! That's what the law all was doing. In verse 20 (coughs) and following, further explain how the law is intended to point to the need for the promised one, Jesus Christ. So what we have here is the promise going clear back to Genesis 3.15. All the way through the Gospels, Paul elucidates it for us again, that God would one day walk and talk again with his creatures, and that can't happen except for the promised one coming. The only problem is the law became the goal in the religious 
eyes. The law became the stumbling block. It became the means unto an end. It became the end for the religious. It still is the end for the religious today. To put it in kind of an illustrative way, the law points that the Titanic is going down, or rather the the law is kind of like the Titanic going down. It is sinking. And no matter how much you rearrange the furniture on the deck of the Titanic, and no matter how much you put the orchestra over there, or the tables over there, or the lounge chairs over there, or the little cups with the lemonade and the umbrella over there, it's all going down. That's the law. That's the great gravity of the law. It's all showing the very reality that it's going down. Paul calls it being shut up through the law. And so don't forget, folks, as we understand here the incarnation, just how deceiving just how much gravity the law has in the minds and in the hearts of so many. We're specifically talking about the Mosaic law here. There's context to that. We're going to kind of skip over that for time's sake. But Paul's point really does telescope out to not just the Jew having, having the stumbling block in the, of the law in their hearts. He talks about in Galatians, Titus having that problem, and he was a Gentile because of the the weight, the gravity of the law by so many. He says Barnabas got tripped up over it. And today, you and I still have the tendency to get tripped up over it. And certainly our friends to, to make the gravity of the law become the most important thing rather than the one who is greater than the law, the one who came to fulfill it. So Paul's whole argument here is, no, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that we can be justified by faith. And really this leads us, as we close, to the last point. So God has a plan. He has a promise. And why did Jesus come under the law? Here's his purpose. So that he would redeem. So that he would redeem those under the law. (coughs) He might redeem those under the law. Grammatically, the structure is very clear. There's a purpose here. He sent his son so that he might redeem. The question is, who is under the law? We already had mentioned that it was certainly the Jews, but Paul really, I believe, here, and we could talk about this later, go through Galatians chapter 3 in a little bit more of a, uh, of a detailed sense. He really says that everyone is underneath this law, and all need the redemption offered by Jesus Christ. And so we get to this purpose that he might, here it is, here's the word, redeem. 
There's the purpose. There's the purpose of the incarnation. One man says that this word means liberation from enslavement involving, involving the payment of price. This, this is a word meaning to buy back. It corresponds really with the verse uh, a little previous to this in, chap, in, verse four, in chapter 4, verse 3. So right up here in chapter 4, verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage. Jesus redeemed those who were held in bondage. That's Paul's point. There's a little bit of parallelism there. So it corresponds to that thought. And the thought continues in verse 3. We were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. That parallel thought really corresponds with the law. The foundational things. The right and wrong things of the world. We were in bondage to them. No way of escaping them. No way of freeing our enslavement from them, but for God's plan. In the fullness of time, sending his son. But for God's promise. Born of a woman. Born under the law, but for God's purpose. To redeem those who are under the law. That's the only way of escape of this bondage. This enslavement to the law. And so, Christian, this time of year, this is a great way to remind ourselves to be joyful. To be thankful that redemption is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here today and you merely know about Jesus Christ, but you don't really understand why it is that God had to send his son in the first place and why it is that, that, that sin is such a big deal. My friend, Christ can be yours today. He offers you and me freedom from the bondage of just doing everything so right all the time because you just can't do it. I overcooked the turkey. I ruined the potatoes. I got mad at my wife. Whatever it is, you try to just do and do and do and do. And what's the law going to keep on screaming at you? You can't get the turkey right. You can't get your attitude right. You're just too tired. You're too selfish. The law is going to be a faithful companion in that regard. And Jesus was sent, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from that kind of tyranny. That, my friend, is what Christmas is all about. That is the purpose of the incarnation. To redeem us. To redeem us from the tyranny of the law and sin. And here's another glorious purpose. Not only redemption, but Paul goes on further in verse 5 to give us another purpose clause. That we might receive what? The adoption as sons. 
God had a glorious plan. He has glorious promises that he's keeping. And he has a wonderful purpose for all mankind to come to the Savior, to be redeemed, so that they can be adopted. One man puts this word this way. He says, The word is found only in the letters of Paul in the New Testament. That is the word adoption. This specific word. It has distinctly Greco-Roman flavor to it and undoubtedly alludes <coughs> to the Greek and or Roman practice of adoption, which stresses the legal rights and privileges that are conferred on the man who is adopted. And that's so true. I'm not going to argue with that. There is a legal standing that we have. But if we continue reading here, we get so much more than just a legal title to being sons of God. My friends, this is the glorious mystery of the Incarnation. The fact that God would send His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might be adopted. What? Sorry, a little loud, but this is kind of worth getting loud about. Because you are sons. God has sent forth, verse 6, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. This is in reference to up above in chapter 4. But a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's usage goes way beyond legal terminology here in terms of adoption. Paul's not claiming that we merely have legal rights, though that is true. He is claiming that there is a status and literally a biological change of family. There is, Paul calls it, spiritual death walking around until someone is made new in Christ and then is born again into God's family. He is saying we actually become sons and daughters of God. Not just merely legal last name holders, but we actually become sons and daughters, my friends. And we are heirs of all the promises. And this all happens because the Holy Spirit makes us new, Paul says. Okay. So, look at verse 6. See that last part? Where you and I can cry, Abba, Father. That's not just merely legal, my friends. That is relational. That is an intimate declaration to the God of heaven that he is your Daddy. You know, I don't walk around just saying, hey, Dad, to anyone. There's one person I do that to. He lives in Eastlake. Anybody else, it'd just be kind of weird. But what Paul is saying here is that we have, I'm Gaga, 
to Olivia. My, my daughter Olivia is one and a half years old, and she is stuck with a pacifier in her mouth. And so everything kind of comes out weird. But I'm Gaga. No one else walks around calling me Gaga. But it is, I, I would have traded for the world. I love hearing Gaga. Now, sometimes I sound like Doggy. Sometimes I sound like her blanket, which is Gaggy. It's, it's a mess, right? It's complicated. I've got a bunch of women in my house. But the fact of the matter is, that's who I am. And there's only one person in the world who can call me that. It's my daughter. My friends, you get to call God a special name that no one outside of his family can call him. And you have access to him at any time, at any moment. And he has a plan. He really does. He has a plan for you. And he has a plan for me. He keeps his promises all the time. Nothing can ever stop him from keeping his promises. Oh, my friends, he has a glorious purpose to redeem us and to call us his sons and daughters. This is the great purpose of the incarnation. Father, this morning I do pray as we close that you would help us bundle up all that we labor under today. Some of us are fearful We're fearful of losing the ones we love. Some of us are fearful of that next medical appointment. Some of us are fearful of just things outside of our control. Some of us are so burdened with the temporary cares and financial pressures of this world. Some of us will find ourselves at times being violently threatened. Oh Lord, whatever it is, whatever may come, please help us to see your great plan. Please help us to remember your wonderful promises. And please help us to build up our courage of faith and remember the glorious purposes of redemption and adoption. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.